All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 28. Romans 3, 19 through 28. As many of you know, my wife gave birth to our second child last week. And so I'll be taking the month of May off from the pulpit. Um, and, and since I missed last week, and this will be my final sermon until June, I've decided to not continue the Respectable Sins series. Maybe we'll pick it up back, maybe we won't. But instead, I'm going to preach a standalone sermon today. And this morning, I'll be preaching on the doctrine of justification by faith alone from my favorite portion of Scripture in the entire Bible, Romans three nineteen through 28. Now, why do I want to preach on this doctrine today? Why this? I have three reasons. One, um, I need to preach this doctrine for my own good. Uh, to be transparent with you all, I feel like the Lord, um, probably because of my arrogance of heart, has permitted Satan to assault me over the last couple of months about this doctrine. In the course of my studies, I came up against a challenging subject that I will not trouble you with right now. And studying multiple views of that subject, I began to have a bit of a crisis about whether or not the, do the doctrine of justification by faith alone is true. That's kind of embarrassing to say as one of your elders, but that's the truth. And so I was sent back to the basics, like the basics of basics, to restudy this glorious and biblical life-giving doctrine that answers the question, how can man be made right with God? And I can't get it out of my head. And so I must get it off my chest. I need to preach this doctrine because it has become even more precious to me. I need to have this truth reiterated to myself. That my right standing with God is all of grace, all of Christ, and received by faith and not by works. I need to preach this sermon to myself this morning as much as I think I need to preach it to you. Second, from time to time and even recently... Some of the members of this congregation come to me expressing doubts about their standing with God. And, and they, aren't, they aren't questioning whether or not they're saved uh, because they have come to embrace a heresy or are living a grossly immoral life or anything like that. Rather, they'll come to me questioning whether or not they're saved because they see remaining sin in their lives. Because they face the daily reality that they do not yet perfectly love and obey God or because they feel like they haven't done enough to be called a Christian. To those of you who feel that way, this sermon is for you. Third, every Christian needs this doctrine beaten into their heads and hearts on a regular basis. All of us. Luther was right. This is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. Calvin was right. This is the doctrine... On which It's the hinge on which the church turns. Brothers and sisters, justification by faith alone is everything. And I'm not saying that for the sake of rhetoric. It is everything. And that's because justification by faith alone is just another way to say that justification is by Christ alone. This doctrine is everything. It is the gospel itself. That we are made right with God Rather, we are not made right with God by our works, but solely by the work of Christ given to us by faith alone is the gospel of God. It is everything and we must never lose it. For if we lose it, we lose everything. So we must remember and be reminded and be dedicated to this truth. The great question for all mankind is this. How can a man be made right with God? How can a sinner be reconciled to God? How can one who has broken God's law avoid the wrath of God and instead be at peace and have fellowship with the God he has sinned against? That's the question. And the word of God declares to us in no uncertain terms, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So that is what I intend to preach to you this morning. May God have mercy on us as we turn now to his word. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible, sufficient word of God. Romans three nineteen through 28. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Amen. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, help us today. Help us to understand. Help us to see. Help us to believe. Help us to forsake ourselves in all of our attempt at obedience. Help us to forsake our own righteousness that we might be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Get me out of the way that you might speak to your people by your word and spirit. Grant that we would be broken by your law and put back together by your gospel. Show us our Lord Christ and the righteousness that you give to us in him alone. Have mercy on us today and sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. In verses 19 and 20, the apostle Paul is, is finishing the argument that he began in chapter 1, verse 18. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20 is one building argument. Paul has been demonstrating that all mankind, both Jew and Gentile, are guilty of sin before God and therefore deserving of his condemnation. He has showed in chapter 1 that the Gentiles are guilty of all manner of sin. And then in chapters 2 and 3, he showed that the Jews are just as sinful as the Gentiles. Now, why did he do this? Well, listen, it was easy to see that the Gentiles were wicked. They didn't have the Old Testament scriptures. That is the written law of God. They were not part of the nation of Israel and therefore were excluded from God's covenant people. And they served false gods openly. It's easy to see that. And that led to all of the immorality that Paul mentions in Romans 1. Easy to see that the Gentiles are wicked and sinful and damnable. But the Jews were reluctant to believe that they also were sinful. So Paul takes all of chapter 2 and up to verse 19 of chapter 3 to demonstrate that the Jews were indeed just as sinful as the Gentiles, even though they had the privilege of owning the law of God. This is reiterated in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3 when Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And then the apostle goes on to quote from many places in the Old Testament, in verses 10 through 18, primarily I think Isaiah and the Psalms. And all of these quotes demonstrate the sinfulness of mankind as a whole. He says things like this, no one seeks for God. That's, that's universal. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. They use their tongues to deceive. Their mouth is full of bitterness and curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul says that all of these things are true of all mankind, both Jew and Gentile. And then Paul, in verse 19, begins his conclusion, which is where our text began this morning. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Some people say, what's that mean? Well, there's a few different ways that the apostle uses the word law in the book of Romans. But concerning, or rather considering that he just finished quoting multiple places in the Old Testament in the preceding verses, and then he refers to the law speaking in verse 19, we see that he here is calling the entire Old Testament the law in this sentence. And he says, catch it, I, 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 I had never understood this until I restudied this lately. He says that whatever the Old Testament says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And that's, by the way, one of the ways that Paul refers to the Jews, those who are under the law. His point is that whatever the Old Testament says, it says first to the Jew, because that's who it was given to. Then it speaks to the Gentile as well. So all of these terrible things that Paul says in verses 9 through 18, none is righteous, not one, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, those things apply first to the Jew and then to everyone else in the world. His point then stands firm. All mankind is sinful and guilty before God. This is why he then goes on to say in verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The scriptures, the written law of God, renders everyone guilty. And the language here is strong, that every mouth may be stopped. How we would say that, and it's not very nice, the world will shut up in God's courtroom. All are rendered without an excuse. By the way, in the courtroom, to have your, law, to have your mouth stopped means that you can't give a defense. You have no defense to give. Paul says the word of God speaks and shows that every man, woman, and child, without exception, is guilty of sin and deserving of condemnation. And there is no defense to be made. You are guilty. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This verse is very important. I'm actually going to spend a good bit of time on this now. This verse is really important. Paul says here that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. To be justified... I know a lot of you know this. Pay attention anyway. To be justified is to have a legal declaration placed over you. That's what a judge does. A judge can justify or a judge can condemn. That is, a judge can declare you to be in the right or a judge can condemn you and say that you are wrong. So again, this is a courtroom word. And theologically speaking, to be justified is to have God declare you to be righteous in his sight. It's to have God not condemn you. It's the opposite of condemnation. He's saying there's nothing to condemn you about. You are righteous with me. It's to have God functionally look at you and say, he or she is right with me. And Paul says here, catch this, God's declaration of righteousness will not come to us by works of the law. We will not be declared righteous in God's sight by working the law. To put, it even, to put it a different way, we will not be made right with God. We will not avoid condemnation by obeying the law. That's what it means to work the law, is to obey it. And that leads us to a very crucial question. What are the works of the law? What is the law that Paul is talking about here in verse 20? This is huge. This is an enormous part of the debate between Rome and other heretical groups versus Protestant or biblical Christianity. Some will claim, hear me, some will claim that works of the law is a reference to the ceremonial law only. And that's it. They claim that Paul is only saying that you will not be justified by being circumcised, obeying dietary regulations, performing ritual washings, and observing the feasts of the Old Testament. Right. That is the vast majority position of the Roman Catholic Church and other heretical groups that deny justification by faith alone. They say 
that you will not be saved. They'll, they'll say, oh, you will not be saved by obeying the Old Testament ceremonial law. And they're right. But then they'll go on and say this, but that does not exclude obedience to the moral law. You see, there are some, like Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, who teach that justification, right standing with God, comes by faith plus obedience to the moral law, among other ritual things that they make you do. They teach that God will not declare a sinner to be righteous in His sight until a sinner has actually become righteous through obedience to the moral law. Let me say that again. Rome teaches that God will not declare a sinner to be righteous in His sight until that sinner has actually become righteous through, they don't deny faith, through faith plus obedience to the moral law. Do you see what's at stake here? If Paul is talking only about the ceremonial law in this verse, then Rome very well may be right. And the Reformation was a big heretical movement. But, if Paul is talking about both the ceremonial and moral law, if Paul is talking about the commandments of God in general, then Paul is teaching that we will not be declared righteous by any obedience that we offer at all, and therefore men will not be justified. Rome's position that men will not be justified until they're actually righteous falls apart. Because Paul is saying it's by no works. Instead, our justification must come through the work of someone else. Much is at stake here. So what law is Paul talking about when he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight? I believe he is referring to the whole law of God. Every commandment that God has ever given to men. And this includes both the ceremonial and moral law. But I would say this with our forefathers. It has a primary focus on the moral law. And I say that because in this same verse, catch this, it's important. Paul says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. And the ceremonial law doesn't reveal sin. At least it does not reveal sin apart from the moral law. Sin is a violation of God's moral standards. Ceremonial laws are not inherently moral. So disobeying them cannot reveal immorality and sin in human beings apart from knowing the moral law that you should obey God. The ceremonial law by itself cannot condemn. It can't reveal sin. Furthermore, I'm going to give you some arguments now. When Paul talks about the law revealing sin in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he doesn't appeal to the ceremonial law. He appeals to the Ten Commandments. That is, he appeals to the summary of the moral law. Romans 7, 7 says this, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul's saying there what he says in verse 20. The law reveals sin. He says, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known sin. What does he go on to say? For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law said... You shall not covet. Brothers and sisters, if you've been attending this church for very long, you have had that read to you every week. That is the Tenth Commandment. That is moral law. And Paul says that the moral law reveals our sin. So then, works of the law must be a reference to the moral law, even if it also contains a reference to the ceremonial as well. I'm not done, though. Let's go further. Look, we look back to chapter 2. If you want to turn there, go ahead. We're going to be there for just a few minutes. You look back to chapter 2, and you see the same idea of moral law when Paul talks about the law. You're saying, why are you doing this? Because this was very important for me to, be, to become more firm in, in our Protestant doctrine is why I'm doing this. In chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the Old Testament, they don't have the law, they don't have the written scriptures, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Catch this. The Gentiles sometimes obey the law by nature, 
even though they don't have the written scriptures. And in doing so, they prove that the law is written on their hearts. Now, what law is written on our hearts by nature? Let me put that another way. What commandments of God do people, even if they don't have the Bible, know you should obey? You don't kill people. You don't steal. You don't commit adultery. You don't lie. You respect those in authority. There is a God. You should worship him. You should give him time. You should worship him how he wants. You should show him respect. Those are the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows these things. Now, they get warped because of sin, but everyone knows the moral law. But catch this. People do not intrinsically know to abstain from pork and get circumcised. They don't know that. The natural law is the moral law that God has written on everyone's hearts. That's what Paul talks about when he refers to the law here. Later, in verses 21 and 23, Paul goes on to rebuke the Jews who boast that they are righteous because they have the written law. And he says this. You then who teach others, that is, you're teaching others the law. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. When Paul speaks here about the law, he mentions stealing, adultery, and idolatry. Those are the 8th, 7th, and 2nd commandments. Those are moral laws when he's talking about breaking the law. Next, in verses 25 through 27, Paul says this. I thought this was a killer. For circumcision is indeed of value, the ceremonial law being mentioned, if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised, that is not keeping the ceremonial law, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Catch this. Don't get lost in the sauce here, right? I know he's saying a lot of circumcisions being used a lot. Don't get lost here. Catch this. He says that those who are circumcised, that is those who are keeping the ceremonial law, are also those who break the law. And those who are not circumcised, who are not keeping the ceremonial law, nevertheless keep the law. Paul is clearly talking about the moral law in this passage. For how else, here's a question, how else can one who is not obeying the ceremonial law also be said to keep the law unless Paul is talking about a different law, namely the moral? It's the only way that makes sense. Now, I know that that was a lot. This is very important. And now taking all of this together, what law is Paul talking about? We now understand what Paul is saying in verse 20. And it's bittersweet. It's a dagger, but it will prepare us for the gospel. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You will not be made right with God by your obedience or your attempted obedience to any of his commandments. Your works cannot save you. Any of them. Your works cannot take away your sin. Your works cannot make you righteous in God's sight. Not even works coupled with faith can save you. Not, your attempted, not even your attempted obedience to the law after you believe can make you right with God. Why? Because through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law simply reveals that you are a sinner. All pay attention to this. When you compare yourself to the commandments of God, it becomes evident that you have not kept them. Unless you're a liar. Or you have so lowered the standard of God that you think you're keeping it. Read the Sermon on the Mount, if that's you. It becomes evident that you do not keep the law. And that is true both before and after your conversion, isn't it? Maybe you don't break the law in the same way you did when you were a heathen, but you still break the law. 
In other words, again, the law reveals your sin. The law gives you knowledge that you are sinful. Why? Because you've broken the law. And that is all that the law can do for you with regard to your salvation. It condemns you. Why? Because you haven't kept the law. And even when you've tried, you have still in some way come up short or your attempted obedience has been mixed with pride or self-righteousness or some other kind of internal sin. So even though the external thing you did was right and in accord with the law, the motivation was not perfect and therefore it is not law-keeping. A quick aside about Rome. They say God will not declare you righteous until you become righteous by obedience to the law. And yet everyone even after they've been converted, still fails to keep the law. So by that same standard, God will not declare anyone righteous. And what they'll do then is they'll say, oh, no, 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 no. Um, God kind of, because of Christ, because you trust in Christ, uh, God sees your attempt, and since you attempted to obey, it's not pure merit, but it's, it's congruous to say that it's meritorious. Nonsense! You didn't obey the law! You didn't obey it. You didn't obey it perfectly. If God will declare a sinner to be righteous simply because he tried, even though his attempted obedience is still mingled with sin, then God is a liar. You must have a perfect righteousness if he is going to declare you righteous because the Holy One of Israel will not lie. We might look at someone trying and say, good enough. But what does God say to the people of Israel in the Psalms? You thought I was just like you. I'm not like you. I don't judge on a curve. I know I'm being really intense right now, but you have to get this stuff into your heart. The law condemns you. It can't make you righteous. It can't forgive you of your sins. The law can only do this. Here's the function of the law with regard to your salvation. The law can tell you what God demands and then reveal whether or not you have obeyed God perfectly. That is all that the law can do. Just like a mirror can't clean your face, but only shows you whether your face is dirty or clean, so also the law cannot make you righteous, but only reveals whether or not you've kept the law and are righteous. And the verdict is in. You have not and you are not. You have not. I'm going to go through the Ten Commandments very briefly. You have not kept God in first place in your life. How do I know that? Because you sin. You have not worshipped God exclusively according to His will, externally and internally. You have not shown God the reverence He deserves. You have not made proper time for God. You have not obeyed God-given authorities. You have hated and harmed others. You have been sexually immoral in some way, even if it's just in your mind. You have taken what was not yours. You have deceived and lied, and you have not been content with what God has given you. As our Lord summarizes the moral law, you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you have not loved your neighbor as you love yourself. You just haven't. You have not perfectly kept the law. You're a sinner. That's what the law says. You're a sinner. The law does not declare you righteous. Rather, the law reveals your unrighteousness before God. Tablets of stone don't bend. According to the law, we are all damned, and it's too late to change it. Trying to obey the law for right standing with God, even now after realizing that you have sinned, still won't make you right with God. Why? Because you've already broken it. In fact, Paul tells us in chapter 5 that we were born guilty in our father Adam because of his sin. We were born guilty according to the law. So there has literally never been a time in our lives where obeying the law of God could ever save us. But especially not now with our personal sins. Even, catch this, people forget this. Even if you began to obey the law today, and kept it perfectly, which you can't. But I'm going to pretend for the sake of argument that you can. 
Let's say that you began to obey the law and kept it perfectly today. Did you know that the law will still condemn you? you say, how? Because of your past sins. Obeying God today will not undo yesterday's sin. You are still guilty. Even if the law declared, oh, you know, from April 30th onward, he was righteous. The law would still say, but from April 29th backward, he was still unrighteous. And guess what? To be unrighteous at all is to be unrighteous according to the law. Because it doesn't bend me be very American about this. There is no statute of limitations on the Ten Commandments. Hear me clearly. Oh, hear me. Obeying God's law simply cannot make us righteous in God's sight. And that's because of our sin. The law condemns and reveals sin, and so by works of the law, no human being shall be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We don't have righteousness. Let me put it to you this way. Follow this. We will not be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law because we do not have any righteousness according to the law by which to be declared righteous. Let me say that again. It's kind of a complicated sentence. We will not be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law Because we do not have any righteousness according to the law by which to be declared righteous. We don't have perfect obedience. And so God will not and cannot declare us righteous according to the law. But rather we are open and liable to the judgment of the Holy One of Israel because of our sin. We are wide open to His condemnation and wrath and we deserve it. Why? Because we have disobeyed Him. And our works cannot fix our problem. So what are we to do? What hope is there for us? I, I, I honestly, I love this part when I'm getting to preach to someone on the street. They're like, what do I do then? If nothing I do, even if I'm sorry now, by the way, God doesn't care if you're sorry apart from Christ. You're still guilty. Well, what do I do then? Praise be to God, Paul continues. And the letter doesn't end here. Because if it did, we would go to hell. There would be no hope. But the apostle is not finished. He says, but now. All those are two of the most precious words in all of the scriptures. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You should get on your knees and thank God in heaven for this verse. The law reveals sin and condemns us, but praise God, there is still a way for sinners to be declared righteous in His sight. There is a way to be made right with God that has been manifested apart from the law. There's a way to be declared righteous with God and have a right relationship to Him even though you're a sinner. There's a way to be right with God that has nothing to do with your obedience to the law. There is a righteousness that can be yours apart from the law. But what is this righteousness? Paul says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness that comes from God can be ours. You say, well, it doesn't say here it's from God. Well, listen, how do, I, how do I know that? That it's from him? Because it is righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, it's righteousness that is received by us through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through Christ. And so if we receive it, then this righteousness must come from God because it is the righteousness of God. We have no righteousness according to the law. All we have is sin. But God, in his mercy, has decided to give us righteousness so that we can be declared righteous in his sight and saved from the condemnation of the law that we deserve. As Paul says in Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
Brothers and sisters, if we are ever to be declared righteous by God, it's going to be because of a righteousness that he has given us. It will not be by a righteousness that we have earned through obedience to God because we have already shot that into the ground because of our sin. But praise God, he says that he will give us righteousness by which to be justified so that we don't have to be condemned by our own unrighteousness. But what is this righteousness? Paul doesn't dive into it here, but he does in Romans 5. And he teaches us that the righteousness given to us is Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness, his own personal obedience. And that's why this righteousness, by the way, comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In Romans chapter 5, we're going to synthesize some things together. In Romans 5, 12 through 21, the apostle is comparing Adam to Christ. And he's showing that Adam's sin and disobedience led to sin and death for all who are in Adam. That's everyone, by the way. Everyone born of natural generation. But then he tells us of how because of Jesus and his perfect obedience, all who are in him are justified by his obedience. In Romans 5, 18 and 19, we read this. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul says that just as Adam's guilt and disobedience were credited to his descendants. Did you, did you eat of the tree? No, you didn't. His guilt was imputed to you. His guilt was put on you by decree of God. In the same way, Christ's perfect obedience to God will be imputed to you. Credited to all who believe on Christ. Why? Because you've been united to Christ by faith. What's his is now yours. This is the righteousness that comes from God that is promised to all who believe. It is the perfect, spotless, sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus has perfectly obeyed all that God commanded of him. Perfectly righteous to, to his Father. Perfect obedience. As Peter says, 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin committed no sin and Paul is telling us that this perfect righteousness of Christ can be ours and we can have it apart from the law apart from the law and instead of being judged and damned for our sin we can have Christ's righteousness credited to our account and be declared righteous with God for Christ's sake though the righteousness does not originate in us because we did not do the works, or as Luther would say, it's extra nos, it's outside of us. Nevertheless, God will credit it to our account and declare us righteous because Christ and his works have been given to us. And what do we need to do to receive this righteousness of God? Is there a law we need to obey? Do we need to believe and also obey the law, as Rome would say? Is there some ritual that we need to perform no. Verse 22 says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is by faith, not by obedience. Remember that great phrase. It is apart from the law. It's apart from any obedience that we render. It is therefore by faith alone. But what is faith? To put it simply, faith is trusting God's promise concerning Jesus Christ. We could get into the three th the, the three divisions of faith that the puritans got into that's that's legit but for our purposes this morning it is believing what god has promised to you in christ just as paul says in romans 4 3 abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness abraham believed god's promise that god would send the messiah jesus and god counted it to him as righteousness he gave righteousness to abraham by faith we are justified the same way the same way Faith is this, trusting that God will do what he said he will do. Namely, in this case, that he will credit you with Christ's righteousness. That he has done enough in Christ to save you. 
He says, though you, you are unrighteous by the law, you will be declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you believe God? That's the question. Do you believe him? The apostle then goes on to drive home this point about how we are declared righteous with God. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. All have sinned. All men are sinful. But the one who believes in Christ is justified by his grace as a gift. Catch that. Is it by obedience? Is it by believing and also obeying God really well? Is it by any law keeping? No. It is by his grace as a gift. Grace is unmerited favor from God. And we know that. You say, where are you just pulling that definition out there because you're Protestant? No. We know that because here in the same verse, Paul says it is a gift. You don't earn gifts. To earn a gift is nonsense. It's a contradiction of terms. Gifts are given freely. Gifts are not owed. Gifts are not merited. Rather, they are given by a gracious giver. This means that we don't earn justification. Merit is totally excluded in this sentence. You simply receive justification like you receive a gift. God gives it to the one who believes on Christ. No ladder for you to climb, no mountain for you to conquer. Rather, God graciously comes to the sinner who believes and gives the gift of righteousness and justification. Let me put this to you. I'm stealing this from a Puritan. It was the first Puritan book I ever read. I can't remember who wrote it. It's talking about justification and how Rome will say. It's, it's, well, your attempts at obedience, God will count that as some kind of a merit, even though they're imperfect. But without that imperfect merit, God will not declare you righteous. But since your salvation is so much greater than your attempt at obedience, it's a gift. Here's what the guy said. If, you buy, if I buy a kingdom for a penny, it was not a gift. He didn't give it to me. Oh, the king gave me something worth a multitude more than a penny. But he did not give it to me. I bought it. It cannot be called a gift. Even if I have to give something negligible, it's still not a gift. But here Paul says, we are justified freely by his grace as a gift if you have to do one single thing, render one ounce of obedience in order to receive justification, it's not a gift anymore. If after you believe, you have to work at any point along the way whatsoever, then it's no longer by grace, but it's by merit. And Paul makes this clear in Romans 4.4. 4. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you have to work for justification at any point, then God owes you right standing with him. God may have set the terms, and he didn't have to set the terms. But having set the terms, believe and commit, or, and do these works of obedience, and I will save you. If you believe and then do the works, you could approach God and say, give me what's mine. Now Rome will say, oh, no one would do that. Oh, but they could. But they could. Answer me this, can you put God in your debt? It's blasphemy. Can you make God owe you? Of course not. Again, even your attempt at obedience after you believe on Christ is still tainted with sin in some way. So then your good works could never be good enough for God to declare you righteous for what you've done. L unless God makes himself a liar. The apostle was underlining that salvation is all of grace and never at any point depends on our works. We can't earn from God. But here's what we can do. We can receive a free gift from a gracious God. That's what we can do. We can receive God's gift by faith. That is no work. That is simply receiving. Don't turn faith into a work. Faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ and in result get our justification in Him. 
Faith is the hand that God puts the gift into. And God is pleased to give justification and righteousness as a gift because he is kind to the undeserving. Paul then goes on to tell us that this gift comes to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Christ redeemed us. That means to to redeem is to set slaves free at a price. Christ made payment in order that we might be set free from the condemnation of the law. I know I've talked about Christ's obedience and that righteousness being credited to us, but you see, we don't just need that. We're worse than that. We also need our sins taken away and paid for. If we were sinless, we would only need perfect righteousness. But since we have sinned and do sin, we need an atonement for sin as well. God will not wink at our sin, but he desires to give us righteousness. But our sin must still be dealt with so that God's holiness and justice are not compromised. And so we need a payment to be made for our sins. And Paul says that Christ made redemption for us. He made the payment so that we who have broken the law can go free. And he did this when God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. He was put forward that is publicly displayed. He was publicly made our redemption, publicly crucified, publicly set forward by God in our place, and he was our propitiation. Aside from the name of Jesus Christ, this is my favorite word in the entire Bible. To propitiate is to appease the wrath of another, to satisfy wrath. And in this context, it refers to Christ satisfying the wrath of God that is due to us for our sin. Christ was put forward by God to be the satisfier of God's wrath in our place. You hear this every week, but do not tune this out. At the cross, our Lord suffered divine justice for our sin. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, and God punished him as if he had committed our sins. Just as we deserve to be shown no mercy because we have broken the law, so God was merciless to his son at the cross, and God treated Christ as if Christ were you. He was numbered among the transgressors. He was put under the wrath of God. He received the stroke of divine justice. And there he paid for our sins and took them away. What a glorious thought. Our sins were credited to his account so that his righteousness could be credited to ours. This is the gospel. And he satisfied God's wrath for our sin. And he did this so that having our debt to God erased by his blood, we might receive the righteousness of God by faith. And he did this, as Paul says in verse 26, so that God would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does that mean? Just. God is still holy. He didn't turn the other way at your sin. He exacted payment. It just wasn't you that had to pay. He is still just. And he is also now the justifier Because justice has been served and a perfect obedience to the law has been rendered in your place, he can righteously declare you just with him. Righteous in his sight. Why is that? Because though you're a sinner, again, your sins have been taken away and the righteousness of Christ has become yours. And so God can say, oh, this one is actually righteous. Why? Because he actually possesses perfect righteousness in my son. And so it's not a lie. It's not a legal fiction. If God declared you righteous without a perfect righteousness, it would be a lie and a legal fiction. But since the perfect righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you by faith, it is not a lie. For God to say that one is righteous. It's for Christ, but that one nevertheless is righteous because he possesses righteousness. Praise God. God is just and the justifier. In Christ, God has taken care of all of our problems. We had a debt of sin that needs paid for, and Christ satisfied the wrath of God for that debt. And we positively needed righteousness that we cannot earn because we can't keep the law, and God gives us the righteousness of His only Son. In all of this, every bit of it, 
is given to us by grace as a gift through faith, completely apart from the law, apart from any obedience from us. And now we come to the conclusion. Then what becomes of our boasting? If your understanding of how a sinner is saved leaves an inch of room for boasting, it's not what Paul preached. What then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Having this gospel set before you, the apostle says, where is your boasting? Where is your boasting? What can you take credit for? The answer is a resounding nothing. Nothing. We did nothing. God in Christ did everything. As Martin Luther said on his deathbed, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars who have received from God. Know this before I end, before I get into the closing, rather. There are two ways to be justified. Did you know that? There are two ways to be justified. You can perfectly keep the law of God. Or you can have faith in Jesus Christ and receive his righteousness on your behalf. Pick one. Pick one. But since Paul has ruled out our works, we're left with one thing. Faith alone. In Christ alone. Oh, that God might get this into our heads and our hearts. Christ is all. We are beggars and God is gracious. So brothers and sisters, take hold of this gospel and don't let anyone take it from you. Ever. It's everything. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to Rome. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to yourself. Listen to the word of God that declares that you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Listen to the voice of your master saying, I have done enough to save you. And cling to him with all you have, for he is no liar. He will never deceive you. His word is truth. And his word says that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ. May God give us grace to believe, and believing, may he give us peace that cannot be shaken. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you for your word. What a balm it is to a wounded soul to know that it is Christ who saves us. Grant that we would believe and keep us in your grace. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.